The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from the battlefield, analyze Evgeny Prigozhin's surprise return to Russia, and update on the news surrounding the approaching NATO summit. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 6th of July, one year and 132 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, and Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start with an update from Ukraine's Ministry of Defence as of six o'clock Kiev time this morning. They said that yesterday there were five Shahid drone attacks across the country, Shahid 131 and 136. Two were shot down by Ukrainian air defence. Alongside that, there were across the country 59 Russian airstrikes, including the town of Bodonivka. This is about 5Ks northwest of Bakhmut. We'll come back to that later. And Toretsk, which is about 25Ks southwest of there. And there were 65 artillery strikes, so that's multiple launch, rocket artillery, tube artillery, and uh, and mortar strikes across the country. They were focused in the north and northeast around Sumy, Chernihiv, and Kharkiv regions. Ukraine MOD saying there were 38 contacts with with Russian forces, so direct contact between uh, troops, basically. And that's across the country. They are assessing that Russia's main effort at the moment, and it has been for, for a while, is still on a front of about 100 kilometres long that runs north-south from Liman. So this is 30 k's north of Bakhmut. So from Liman down south through Bakhmut, um, through Avdivka, which is about 50 k's south of Bakhmut, just on the northern outskirts of Donetsk City, and then sort of swerve slightly west, southwest to Marinka. So that kind of 100 k front, that's where Russia is really trying to advance elsewhere, in the, especially in the Zaporizhia and Herzon regions to the south. Russia's focusing on the defence, not only constructing the defence still, but repelling the Ukrainian counteroffensive there. So that's where the main sort of activity is happening. Ukraine MOD also saying that Belarusian forces are continuing to train on areas bordering Ukraine just to the north. Now, one of those uh, one of those strikes that was reported was on on Lviv. This is in the west of the country. At least four people have died there. Russian missile uh, hit an apartment block. Thirty two wounded, including a child. Local official Maxim Kozitsky he said it was a direct hit on a residential building. And President Zelensky has posted a video online showing buildings with roof and upper upper floors destroyed, loads of damage, windows smashed, rescuers searching through the through the debris for survivors. Um, he said there would be a response from Ukraine. He said, unfortunately, there are wounded and dead. My condolences to the families. There definitely will be a response to the enemy. It will be a noticeable one. We think rescuers are still there at the scene. Now, next, uh, I mentioned Bodenivka, 5Ks northwest of Bakhmut. Uh, there are reports that Russia 
is in danger of losing that the area around there to the northwest and and the southwest of the city. If that's taken by Ukraine, it could open up access to Bakhmut. This is coming from uh, various reports. Now, Kiev says its forces are on the attack around uh, Klishkiva. This is about three k south of Bakhmut. There are suggestions that that Russia's forces have withdrawn from that village entirely. And then a veteran Russian war correspondent called Alexander Slagkov. He's active on Telegram, obviously very pro-Russian, but like many of these these guys, Igor Gherkin amongst them, there's occasionally the moment, a bit like, you know, even a stop clock tells the correct time twice a day. Every now and again, we think they are close to what's what's actually happening. So Alexander Slagkov is embedded with Russia's troops. He's saying around Bakhmut, we've left Klitschkiva and said that Bakhmut could soon be under control of Ukrainian artillery. Now, just a brief pause. This phrase, control of artillery or control of guns, I think there's a terminology thing here. We don't use that terminology in in sort of NATO parlance. What it doesn't mean is that they hold the ground, but it means that they can, that it's within range basically, and they've got eyes on, so either human or technical eyes on. So they say Russia and and Ukraine to a certain extent use a similar language. They say something is under control of fire or under control of artillery means that they can bring fire down, accurate fire, timely fire, when, when they want to. It doesn't mean that they hold the ground. So Slagkov is saying that uh, Bakhmut could soon be under Ukrainian or control of Ukrainian artillery, which, like I say, doesn't mean that they're in there, but it's uh, it, it's pretty damning for the Russians there. Now, he quoted his sources amongst Russian troops in the area, saying that the soldiers are, are lacking ammunition and having to, to retreat. On his Telegram channel, he said... Quote, we left uh, Klitschkiva, it's near Bakhmut. We need to check if they refute it. I will be glad, as in if the if the Russian authorities refute that they've left Klitschkiva. I will be glad if they do, as in if they have left, it's bad. Bakhmut is under the far control of the Ukrainian armed forces. I can't say a single bad word about our guys who have retreated. According to my information, it is a shelling diet again. I'm glad to be wrong. You cannot be strong without strength. The weak do not win. The city of Bakhmut is under the threat of storming. Will we hold it? Who knows? So... I mean, it would be interesting. Ukraine seemed to be avoiding going directly into the city. As we've said before, urban fighting is, is just hellish. But if they can take the um, take the flanks, then, then holding the ground inside is largely irrelevant. Now, Andrei Kovalyov, uh, spokesman for Ukrainian general staff, he confirmed that Kiev's troops are advancing in the area, but he did stop short of confirming that Ukraine had captured the village. Um, he said that operations were partially successful around Kishkiva, and we're holding on to new positions. The enemy is putting up fierce resistance, calling up reinforcements and sustaining heavy losses. Uh, And just one last one. President Zelensky has been speaking to CNN. He said slow weapon deliveries to Ukraine had delayed the counteroffensive and allowed Russia to bolster its defences. He said he'd sought to begin the counteroffensive much earlier than early June. He said um, in the interview, our slowed down counteroffensive is happening due to certain difficulties in the battlefield. Everything is heavily mined there. A point we've made, we've talked about at length. He said, I wanted our counteroffensive happening much earlier because everyone understood that if the counteroffensive unfolds later, then a much bigger part of our territory will be mined. He said he had told US and European leaders ahead of the start of the counteroffensive that a lack of supplies would result in more casualties. He said, I'm grateful to the US as the leaders of our support, but I told them as well as European leaders that we would like to start our counteroffensive earlier and we will need all the weapons and material for that. Why? Simply because if we start later, it will go slower and we will have losses of lives because everything is heavily mined and we will have to go through it all. Now, just finally on that point, 
Um, the Lith- Lithuanian president, Gitanas Nalseda, he's a host, or Lithuania is hosting next week's NATO conference. He said today, I have a sense that we will find formulations which will not disappoint Ukrainians and will convey more than we are used to saying. Uh, he said that uh, President Zelensky is probably not going to get everything that he wants from the NATO summit, but that he'll be happy with, with the outcome, which... I, don't know, I think they're edging towards a decision on F-16s as well as as well as more quantities of existing um, supplies. But uh, obviously that will, that will come out next week. And I'll take a little pause there. Thanks, Dom. Moving to politics and diplomacy, Francis Sternley, what have you been looking at today? Thanks, David. The row over the next successor to NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg rumbles on and revelations abound. The Telegraph can disclose, again via Joe Barnes and his sources in Brussels, that it wasn't only Macron who rejected the former favourite to succeed Mr Stoltenberg, Britain's Ben Wallace, but President Biden himself. Apparently, Wallace's decision to push for F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine several months ago without Washington's approval was the last straw. And since then, Biden made Ursula von der Leyen his pick for NATO's Secretary General. Now, listeners will recall that it was Wallace who led the way, really, in the campaigns to arm Kyiv with modern battle tanks and then long-range cruise missiles. He, in effect, forced Biden's hand, leading to Washington to do the same, plus then other countries. That was pretty embarrassing for the US, the, in effect, leaders of the alliance. But we learn Washington was dismayed when Britain announced plans to train Ukrainian pilots and form an international effort to arm them with the F-16s. A number of European nations had even signed up to the scheme but were hesitant to make it public before securing the full support of Washington. But Wallace decided that it couldn't wait. Joe Source said that that decision ended any remaining hope that the Defence Secretary had of winning over Biden. The scramble, then, is now on among the more hawkish members of the British Parliament to urge Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to back an alternative candidate amid fears over von der Leyen's record as Germany's defence minister, which I discussed in detail yesterday, and her being perceived as a softer touch on issues of Ukraine than some other candidates. In short... Washington seems to be hedging its best and wants the next NATO head to be someone who can serve as a mediator in the potential event of future peace negotiations. Wallace, by contrast, has made it very clear that he believes this war should only end one way, with Putin's absolute defeat. Now, there may be some wisdom to Washington's desire for flexibility. Who knows what the next few months or even years may bring. But my own view for what it's worth is that doing this now risks emboldening Moscow at a critical juncture of making that absolute defeat, if that's what other European powers want, and many do, less likely. As we've commented on for some time, a fissure is evidently opening up between the leading European powers and Washington. Britain has been clear in its position from the off, but others, particularly France and Germany, in part through British leadership, have been dragged into the stance they now inhabit, that Putin cannot be allowed to profit from this war in any way. Which is why it seems pretty unjust for one of the architects of Germany's former defence policy failures to now be the leading candidate to take over NATO particularly when a majority of NATO members favour what Britain has been saying from the very beginning. At some point, 
if Europe is really committed to the view that Putin cannot succeed in any way, it will have to move away from relying on Washington's support to invest in Ukraine's defence. Yet it seems still reluctant to do so, Poland aside. And I know that France's objection was more that NATO should be led by somebody from a country within the EU. But there are candidates who back a stance more similar to Wallace's. Estonian's Kai Kallas, for instance, though she seems to have been rejected for her overly strong stance as well. So I think if that is France's excuse, it is an excuse, just that, rather than being perhaps the real reason, which is this fear amongst certain quarters of upsetting Washington and their fear being that we cannot afford to have somebody who is an absolutist on the issue of what peace looks like. I won't lie, David, I find it all very dispiriting as we approach the vital NATO summer in Vilnius. The rejection of Wallace on the grounds of Britain not being an EU member when it gave Kyiv the weapons it needed to resist in the first days and weeks in the war, when there was so much hesitation in Europe and beyond, seems petty, if true. And the idea that the alliance should be led by somebody who isn't a hardliner, as I say, only plays into Putin's strategy and seems to reaffirm his lifeline, that the longer he keeps the war going, the stronger his hand will become. Why is there this Western weakness now? We've just seen a mutiny in the Russian army. The regime is evidently not stable. And the Ukrainian counteroffensive is making steady gains every day, as Dom was just talking about. Now, surely, is the moment to be pressing home the advantage, not the reverse. But anyway, uh, speaking of the mutiny, the other major news today is that Alexander Lukashenko, Belarusian president, of course, has confirmed that Yevgeny Prigozhin is back in Russia, specifically St. Petersburg, a development that is causing some surprise, although we have actually heard this being rumoured now for several days, as we touched on earlier in the week. There is an abundance of speculation about what the confirmation of this rumour means. For some, It shows that the Kremlin is too weak, perhaps too self-aware, to crack down on what is almost inarguably the biggest threat it's faced in 20-odd years. Many Russians, of course, still support Wagner and believe Prigozhin's rhetoric on the failed campaign and rotten leadership, particularly in the elite. But there are videos that show a wider popular support, too, of of children sporting the Wagner flags at graduation ceremonies, for instance. So some analysts are arguing that as the cloud clears from the coup attempt, Prigozhin increasingly looks like a snake around Putin's neck, with the Russian leader really too paralysed to do anything about it as the public opinion shifts. I'm not sure that's really my view, but I'm going to leave Natalia to talk about this because, of course, she's been writing up on it and has also, uh, we've been talking about it earlier in the week too, and I know she's got a lot of thoughts. But interestingly, just one final thing on this, the Kremlin has said, that they are not following Prigozhin's movements. And obviously, this is designed to uh, play down his significance. But I would say that if they aren't, they should definitely be doing so, given the danger that he poses to the regime, or at least the being a symbol, if nothing else, of somebody who is getting away with, in effect, being a thorn in the side of the regime. And given the vulnerabilities that the regime faces, is that something that Putin can afford? Many would argue no. But more updates later, David, particularly one on Zaporizhia. But I know Natalia has some thoughts on this. So I'll, of course, let her jump in. 
Thank you very much, Francis. And Natalia Vasilyeva, you've been writing up this story for The Telegraph. Um, Evgeny Prigozhin's return to Russia, confirmed by Alexander Lukashenko today. Um, why has he gone back and what has he been doing? I think it's not about why is he back, but why is he allowed to be back? How come you mount Russia's first mutiny in a century and go around St. Petersburg enjoying yourself, which he apparently has. There was a couple of stunning reports in the past couple of days, starting from this weekend. Apparently, Prigozhin's home and offices were raided. We, we have heard about that. And apparently, he was able to retrieve some of his belongings, starting from a stunning 10 billion rubles in cash, that's about 87 million pounds, to quite a collection of guns and uh, medals that he has kept in his office. And all of that obviously is happening in a country where hundreds of political prisoners have lost their property, haven't got any of those back after all of those police searches. Now, Prigozhin has been spotted in the city, we know that. So uh, Alexander Lukashenko, when he made the statement this morning, he was pretty much stating the obvious. I would say the the biggest takeaway from this is that the Prigozhin saga is definitely not over yet because we thought that either he will end up in exile in Belarus, he will go silent, he will be nowhere to be seen, or he will go to jail or um, he will be killed. So apparently he's been able to move back and forth. Just this morning, open source data showed his plane traveling from Moscow to Rostov. So um, I think Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, is absolutely right when he says that Prigozhin is free to do what he can. And uh, yeah, obviously there are questions from both camp from the opposition and from pro-Kremlin pundits and bloggers. I mean, how come uh, he's able to get away with that? How come the the government is basically handing back wads of cash with no explanation how one could keep as much as 87 million pounds in cash in two vans parked at two parking garages in St. Petersburg. Natalia, can I ask, how uh, how is Prigozhin portrayed now in, in state media? Have you noticed a change in how they talk about him and, and look at him? Yeah, absolutely. There was something last night and this morning which might be an indication of things uh, changing. The Kremlin initially took quite a liberal line with him, calling him a traitor, insisting that his fighters were led astray, they meant well, But we did see a change um, last night when State TV started showing the footage of Prigozhin's mansion, of his office. They did gloat at the images of wads of cash, his giant swimming pool, gold-encrusted this and that. And it's interesting because previously Russian state media basically tried to play it down to say, you know, Russian people stood strong. It didn't didn't heed the call of the mutineers and basically let's forget about it all. This time I was quite struck by an episode on um, 60 Minutes, a flagship program on Russian TV channel Russia One when its crime reporter had uh, quite an impassionate speech accusing Prigozhin of all sorts of things, uh, wondering on, on state TV how come this man was allowed to recruit convicts in Russian prison? I mean, how shocking is that? How come this man could he could keep a dozen of hunting rifles and handguns in his home without a single gun license in place? And there was so much righteous anger about the issues we have heard about and covered 
and obviously all of those allegations of corruptions that it might be an indication that the Kremlin might have a plan in mind for Prigozhin, that it might be pursuing some sort of charges or some sort of campaign to go after him. But again, right now he's his own man. He's traveling across Russia, flying, flying back and forth. But it's quite interesting that the state TV is now dwelling on... Um, on his corrupt uh, nature of something that, I mean, Prigozhin himself has been positioning himself as this fighter on corruption, selling off Defense Minister Shoigu for his ostentatious consumption or, or um, for the luxurious lifestyle that his daughter and that his son-in-law have been leading. So it's interesting to see that the Kremlin is basically trying to to smear him and to make him look as corrupt as everyone else, without obviously telling the viewers that we know that you know that everyone is just as corrupt and look at him, he's probably even worse. Thank you very much, Natalia. Um, Francis Stanley, can I come back to you? There's some other political updates we should definitely, and diplomatic updates we should definitely cover. Um, let's start with one that's slightly more positive than some of the other things you've been talking about today. Thanks, David. Yes, there is just one more story I want to look at today, particularly given that we were talking so much about Zaporizhia yesterday. And that is the positive news that tension around the Moscow-occupied nuclear power plant is decreasing, according to Ukraine, after Kyiv and Moscow, of course, have been excusing each other this week of plotting provocations at the atomic facility. This has come directly from an army spokesman who's added that it was thanks to the powerful work of Kyiv's military and diplomatic efforts with our foreign partners to put pressure on Russia. If true, it shows the value of talking about these things, of talking about dangers like nuclear threats. When we do, we reduce the risk. Yet all too often, it seems to me, people think the reverse. Now, interestingly, in an interview with the Times of London, the head of the Ukrainian intelligence service, Badanov, characterised in the piece by one US intelligence official as George Smiley meets Jason Bourne, which I thought sounded rather like Dom, actually. But anyway, he said that we take certain actions in this sphere, both public and non-public. And I think that the danger of an artificial man-made disaster is gradually decreasing. He then went on to add, the situation is indicating exactly what our service has been talking about, that the Russian Federation is on the edge of a civil war. There needs to be a small internal affair and the internal conflict will be intensified. Now, he was saying similar things before the mutiny, and I think a lot of people dismissed him. But clearly, there was more accuracy in that than many believed. The GRU's analysis of certain surveillance studies suggests that actually in the middle of the crisis, Putin could rely on Moscow's loyalty, but not that in St. Petersburg, his hometown. And also that among the Russian Federation's republics, support for Putin ranked lowest in Dagestan, where Prigozhin enjoyed a 97% support rating. Now, of course, he would say this. He wants to sow discord and emanate strength, one of the key pillars of any good intelligence operative. But it does seem that in recent days there has indeed been an increased focus on Zaporizhia in the United States, internationally and domestically. And... As I say, I think this is a welcome development. For a long time, it felt like we were one of the few outlets really talking about Zaporizhia and the threat that it may pose. So on this, his analysis may be accurate, but I'll leave listeners to draw their own conclusions about what's been going on. I think there has been a lot of diplomatic engagements taking place, some that we may not learn about for many years to come. But as long as Russia occupies that plant, I think there is going to be anxiety about what they may do there. 
And that is why, of course, you hear regular commentators like Hamish de Brett and Gordon say that really there needs to be some kind of effort to either make it a demilitarised zone or for China to be involved in some way that will ensure that there can't be some kind of incident there triggered by Russia because they dare not upset the Chinese. But anyway, we shall see and we'll be following this as ever. Well, thank you very much, Francis and Natalia. Um, Don Nichols, can I come to you? Um, would you give us a bit of a sense of what you've been looking at on your Defence In Depth uh, episode? This is the video series you do with The Telegraph. What, what have you been covering this week and how does it relate to the um, war in Ukraine? Yeah, sure. So we do, as well as a daily podcast, we do a weekly Defence In Depth video, we call it eight or nine minute uh, deep dive into, into a contemporary issue. And I just look, so we've done it for about three months now, but this is just a, a, a quick look at something behind the headlines, if, if you like. And this week, I've been looking at, well, psychology, really. And I was making the point, I've, I've said it before on, on this pod, that uh, you know, armies don't fight wars, nations fight wars. It's army, the army just does the shooting bit. And I've tried to unpack that and, and started off with the, the framework, the British Army framework, a kind of geographic laydown of what they call deep, close and rear operations. Now, deep operations are kind of things like long range precision strike and attacks by special forces and so on. Close operations are as that real, that intensely violent contact battle. And then rear operations are, are those there to sustain the force, the so logistic elements, the training bases, the headquarters and so on and so forth. And I make the point that you know, it's not a rigid model or, or an exact science. And I say, like, you know, that special forces raid, I, I suggest, it's a deep operation, but it's very close for the men and women actually there when the when the shooting starts. And of course, as an element of support that's been considered by the by the rear based logistic commanders. So, you know, don't get hooked up on the geographic limit. It's about how to look at a battlefield and have to think about the sequencing of operations and how each element sits in relation to to all the others. So we talk about that for a little bit. And then I'll take that scaffolding as is happening in recent years. So that that idea of a kind of geographic framework of deep, close and rear, where you're, where you're putting your effort. And that is now being thought of as more, more a conceptual framework as well for battle in the mind. You know, it's in the mind where wars are, are won and lost. It's when the enemy commanders, enemy leaders decide they are not going to prevail. That's, that's when you win. That's when wars end. So it's in the, you know, in the mind. And there's, a, again, not an exact science, a bit clunky maybe, but there's this idea that deep, close and rear can apply to the, to the mind as well. So I'm, I'm saying that you know, trying these deep operations in the mind is there to unsettle the enemy, to spook the enemy. And I point to General Kirilla Badanov's recent Plans Love Silence tweet. You'll, you'll find it. You know, this amazing thing where for about 30 seconds, the guy does nothing but just stare at us. And then at the end, you know, finger to the lips, Plans Love Silence. And I, I make the point that if I was a Russian conscript in a trench in, in Ukraine waiting for the, the counteroffensive to arrive on top of me, that silent self-confidence would freak me out. And so that kind of you know, very simple, but you know, highly produced tweet, and it's pushed by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense and their Foreign Affairs Ministry and, and what have you. These are deep psychological operations happening at the same time. And then you get President Zelensky at a book fair or taking selfies at a petrol station. This is just showing the people that he's there. It's, it's sustaining the sustaining society, it's sustaining the force, adding to that sort of that groundswell of societal strength and i contrast that with the kind of messaging that we see from from russia with with putin at one moment behind this you know ridiculously long table and then the next minute i mean interesting you mentioned dagestan there francis he was he was then shown down in dagestan so i just put these ideas out there and these frameworks about how military and political commanders think about galvanizing the whole of the nation to fight the war rather than just outsourcing it to the 
military, which is pretty much what we did in Afghanistan, just left the MOD to get on with it. When actually, you know, if it's a war, then you've got to lean into it, the whole, the whole of society, the whole politics. And I say when these cogs, deep, close, rear, on the battlefield, in the mind, aimed at the domestic audience, the enemy, the international court of public opinion, when they're in alignment, everything works. And when they're not, cracks appear. And I suggest like the Wagner dash up the M4 was one of these cracks appearing. So anyway, the video team are bashing the keyboard as we speak. Yeah, they'll be out this evening on the YouTube, Telegraph YouTube channel. And I think we'll, we'll probably have it on our homepage and the US page tomorrow. Thanks, Tom. Some of those are ju- just words to me, I'm afraid. Just words. Um, Natalia, Dom and Francis, can I go to your final thoughts? Um, Natalia Vasilev, would you like to start? Sure. Yeah, I think um, this saga is not over. Um, it was quite interesting to hear Alexandra Lukashenko speak about the potential deployment of Wagner in Belarus, because before that, everyone was under the impression that Belarus was happy to host them, whatever it is, give them a uh, roof of their, their head, shelter, whatever. But this morning, Lukashenko made it clear that there's a condition to them staying in Belarus. He basically said that they need to have something to do in Belarus. They could be training the Belarusian military. And if they are willing to do that, if they're willing to essentially cooperate with the Belarusian military to come under their command, they are very much welcome to do so. So that leaves a big question unanswered, which is what is going to happen to all of those thousands of people who have been under Prigozhin's command, who um, were mar- marching on to Moscow before they stopped about 200 kilometers away. Those men are reportedly in field camps in the same areas where they were before the mutiny. But again, how long are they going to stay there? Who is going to pay their salaries? Is this what all of the cash seized or are the return to precautions going to go to? That's a big unknown that obviously could have major implications both for the things on the front line in Ukraine and for the things domestically in Russia. Thank you very much, Natalia. Uh, Dom Nichols. Thanks. Well, I'm going to stick on Prigozhin as well, because I just think he's driving the agenda. It's fascinating at the moment. As I said yesterday, when he says something, it hits the headlines. When he doesn't say anything for a few days, that gets commented upon. I don't know why Putin is allowing this to to go on. I mean, today we've got Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus saying he's not here, he's in St. Petersburg. So it's now got to the stage that other people are driving this for him. But it's like all eyes and all the attention is on is on Wagner. And we're still playing the Where's, the Where's Waldo game of um, Sorovkin. He hasn't popped up for a couple of weeks. But this issue has not been snipped off. This mutiny, this this whatever it was, the coup, the, the mad dash. Now, Putin had, didn't deal with it well at the time, and he's not dealing with the after effects now. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that, that, that there hasn't been some greater sanction against Wagner and Prigozhin in particular. And this issue is just rumbling on. And I, I, the, the more it does so, is the more these cracks are going to appear. I think something will come to a head for Putin. It, it has to. This guy is driving the agenda. He's popular elsewhere around the country. We know that. And the longer it goes on, it's like a festering sore in the Kremlin. And I'm just amazed that Putin hasn't been firmer on this. For once, I'm not going to pose an opinion in my final thought, but a moral conundrum. Listeners who've been with us since the beginning will remember there was a period when senior Western figures were encouraging or at least turning a blind eye to soldiers volunteering to fight in Ukraine. Not least Britain's then Foreign Secretary, later briefly Prime Minister, Liz Truss. A number of Britons travelled there to fight, many of whom were captured and subsequently released from Russian detention in Ukraine as part of a prisoner swap last year. Others broke rules 
in order to go, including one British soldier who has now become the first to be locked up for going AWOL to fight in Ukraine. This is Royal Welsh Fusilier Alexander Garms Rossi, 21, who was deployed in Estonia when he went missing from NATO's Operation Cabrit and sent his unit a message admitting he'd crossed the border to join pro-Ukrainian forces. And a court-martial has now found him guilty and he's been sentenced to 12 months in a military detention centre. Now, obviously, it's one thing for an active soldier to go AWOL and quite another for an ordinary volunteer to go. So they are separate issues. But there is a broader question here about whether people from foreign countries who want to fight should be supported in doing so or whether it does more harm than good, offering leverage to Russia when negotiating with prisoners, for instance, and also for them to deploy in their propaganda, claiming that the West is sending hostile actors, for instance, or for them to be able to parade captured prisoners in front of the TV cameras. Now, historically, the most famous example of volunteers going to fight is the Spanish Civil War of 1933-39, when many opted to fight against General Franco as part of the so-called International Brigades. Many Brits went. George Orwell was one. He was wounded in the neck, I believe, as did Laurie Lee, later a famous travel writer, and Julian Bell, the latter of whom was killed. Now, the impact of these volunteers was considered negligible militarily, but important culturally and symbolically. It highlighted international solidarity for the cause against fascism. And some would argue that that's what volunteers in Ukraine have done. Not just those fighting, of course, on the front lines, but also those who have offered support in other ways. So I pose this question to listeners. What do you think? I'd like to reflect on this issue deeper in a later episode, perhaps even interviewing some of those soldiers. So please feel free to drop me a line on Twitter and perhaps we'll return to this question at a future date. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. <laughs>